to Future Primitive, I have uh, a treasure on line with me today, and uh, it's Richard Katz. He received his PhD from Harvard University and taught there for 20 years. The author of several books, he has spent time over the past 50 years living and working with indigenous people in Africa, India, the Pacific, and the Americas. He is Professor Emeritus at the First Nations University of Canada and an adjunct Professor of Psychology at the University of Saskatchewan. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Welcome, Richard. I'm, um, Always. Uh, it's I, really good to be here. Yeah. Thank you. I just wanted to say that I'm holding in my hands your latest book, Indigenous Healing Psychology, Honoring the Wisdom of the First People. So I would like to start this by asking you, what do you think of psychology at this point in your life? <laughs> I, I was always waiting for your question. It's a wonderful question. Eh? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and, um, I'll tell you the reason it's, it's many reasons it's a wonderful question. Um, I started out my professional life as a psychologist. Uh, going to Harvard for my PhD. And um, that was to try to find a, a setting in which I could be of help to others or serve others. That was my naive uh, motivation. Um, I had tried law school. I tried medical school, you know, not right through, but just a little bit of a taste of each. And I settled on psychology. Well, this was probably a big mistake <laughs> because what I found when I had uh, my training in clinical psychology is that psychology was not designed to serve people, to help people, but to categorize, to label, to put people into boxes so they could be diagnosed. And then once diagnosed, they could be treated. And once treated, that's where psychology came in because it was a treatment profession. So that was in 1968, I got my, my doctorate. But at the same time, uh, 65 rather, 1968, I had my first experience working with indigenous people in the Kalahari Desert, working with hunter-gatherers. And there I saw real healing, the community gathering together to help each other, the healing energy spread throughout the community. The notion that one person could be healed would make it more likely to get 
another be healed as opposed to the Western thing where one person who goes into the office of the psychotherapist to get therapy prevents someone else from doing the same thing. And that in 1968 changed my life. And so though I continued to practice psychology, mostly teaching research and some counseling, the teachings of indigenous elders and indigenous healers was what guided my life over the past 50 years. And now I see psychology as deeply flawed, but perhaps if they listened more to indigenous elders and healers, mainstream psychology could in fact become what it was supposed to be, which was dealing with the psyche, the soul, and in a healing manner. So it's been a long journey. I still call myself a psychologist, but in a very different meaning of that word from when I started out in 1965 with my doctorate. I have a, a double question here that's kind of married together. So intuitively, very early, you knew that this wasn't about fixing people's social lives or fixing people. So your soul perhaps guided you to travel, to do a lot of traveling. So the second question within this one is if you would start by defining the term indigenous people and then tell us about your travels and your learning. Right. <laughs> what, what tough questions, excellent questions. Thank I mean, you. not tough, but Thank they, you. they make me smile. You can't, oh. you can't see me smile. I'm smiling. They make me smile um, too. You, you make me smile. Uh, okay. Um, the thing is that... Um, in terms of indigenous as a definition, I go very much with the idea of people having the um, responsibility and the authority and the um, privilege of defining themselves rather than my offering a definition. But the way I look at it, the people I've worked with in different parts of the world see themselves as the first inhabitants in that particular part of the world. So it's almost like the first people to inhabit a geographic area could be seen as indigenous people. So that's kind of the way I've, I've gone. And in terms of, of how uh, it started, I have to confess it started somewhat by accident. Um, when I was a graduate student, I was involved with um, Tim Leary and Dick Alpert and the use of psychedelic drugs. This was my graduate training. And of course, many people say hey, listen, that's a good way to go to graduate school. <laughs> and, um, and I met somebody by the name of Richard Lee, who was a postdoctoral, and I was doing a postdoctoral year. And literally what he said to me was, he said, Dick, he said, are you interested in going to someplace where they change their state of consciousness, they alter their state of consciousness, but no drugs? And at that point, I said, of course, because we were all searching for ways in which we could transform our consciousness without drugs. We were just starting to go into the idea of meditation and so forth. So I was very interested in that invitation. And literally, after writing a grant, that's what got me to the Kalahari in 1968. And as I say, after that experience, it seemed like that was, you, you talked about my soul. It could be, but I can't claim the first time I went that I knew what I was doing, but 
being guided by your soul, as you put it, I think that's one of the definitions. You really don't know what's happening and why, but it's happening. And so after that uh, visit in 1968 to the Kalahari, I then went to uh, Rosebud Reservation in uh, South Dakota to work with Lakota people. And um, um, in, in that case, um, working with Stanley Redbird and, uh, and other ones uh, at uh, the Rosebud Reservation. And um, then um, going from there, I went to the Fiji Islands in the South Pacific and lived there for about three years, uh, working with a man named, uh, in, in the village in the, uh, in the South Pacific, a man named Ratu Thivo. And uh, then I also went um, to work in Alaska and worked with Athabascan people. Howard Luke was the elder that I worked with there. And then came back uh, to uh, Saskatchewan and had been working with elders here, Athabas Ath uh, elders from the uh, Cree nation and the uh, Soto or Anishinaabe nation. Elder Danny Musquill was the one I worked with primarily. So I've been sort of, uh, since 1968, this has been my, my really focus, my passion, and it seems to me almost that there's no other way of trying to find out about health and healing. But then I bring it back to my professional identification in psychology. And now, uh, Joanne, what I'm doing is I'm working very intensively with a couple of different programs, one in the prisons here, to try to bring psychology and psychologists to an awareness of indigenous teachings, to make psychology more respectful of diversity, more committed to social action, social change, and more appreciative of spirituality as a health and healing dimension. So now it's the, it's the phase of applying these teachings. And uh, so it's an exciting time. You know, I, again, I'm still, I guess, could be labeled a psychologist, but probably a lot of psychology would say, what is he doing? Well, what I'm trying to do is to make psychology more responsive to the needs of people. And I hope that some of your listeners who are practitioners mm -hmm. in psychology or psychiatry or social work will take a look at this book because I think it has some things to tell us about how to be more helpful, how to be more respectful, and how to relate to the issues that really matter with our clients and with our communities. Well, I feel I, I have gone through a lot of um, healing in my life, and, and what I mean by healing is uh, acquiring a sense of belonging and, and, and compassion for myself and others. That's what I would call healing for me. And what you woke up in me as deep, more deeply in your book, one of the things is that to uh, to feel to feel less alone, one has to be, and that's part of healing, perhaps. One has to live in the work of the community. And then while you were talking, I was, I was thinking, wow, that's extraordinary because perhaps we're meant to be nomadic and we can heal in different, different contexts when we take our context to another context. 
So you know why? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe talk about context. Yeah, uh, can I just say one more thing though for yes. the people who are listening? Now, this is the first time I've met Joanne, but I have to tell a little story, which is that um, our interview was scheduled earlier, and I got an email from Joanne. Joanna, I think we could. Uh, summer, sorry, Joanna. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and she said, uh, yeah, that's that's important. <laughs> she said to me, and this is beautiful, could we have a little more time because I want to get more more deeply into your book out of respect for the book. Now, to me, that was very touching because I've done a number of interviews, ain't eh, Joanne? And uh, a couple of them, they hadn't read the book. <laughs> I know. Now, I know that sounds um, uh, a little bit strange and maybe some of your listeners would say of course we listen to joanne's program because she does go deeply but it was very touching for me and i felt an honor that you wanted to get back into the book so you could digest it more fully and to really appreciative of that Thank you. and i wanted to mention that um this idea of belonging and um and passion for yourself and others is so important and that's one of the teachings uh that the book tries to to stress and particularly the idea that psychology is meant to serve others all the indigenous teachings that i've gotten is about service now, i remember there was a time when i was a graduate student with the psychedelics and uh, there was a woman named maria sabina down in mexico and she said something about all these people that were coming down uh, from north america to study the herbal um, uh, remedies that she had the mushrooms and so forth and she said that you know why are these people coming down to discover god why are they coming down to understand their spiritual lives we use these substances and this is the indigenous teachings i've gotten all over the world we use these teachings to serve others <laughs> and that's the thing that's so important because, for example, in psychology, and this is what the book talks about, there's a tendency for us to say, this is a good counselor or a good therapist, as if to say that that therapist or counselor is the reason why the therapy or counseling is good. But the teachings that I've gotten is we as individuals, as persons, are not responsible for taking credit for the healing. We are vehicles. Our healing energy vehicles for some contact that's made between client and therapist. We are vehicles. We don't take credit. Our job is to serve as vehicles to serve others. And that's a really important point that mainstream Western psychology has to learn not to take credit, but to serve. And uh, so the idea of working in a community makes tremendous sense because when you work in a community, you see that if you work alone for your own benefit, for your own prestige, it doesn't, it doesn't work. People will turn away from you. And what we see in indigenous communities so often is the people who are most effective are those who serve others selflessly. And that's one of the teachings that the book really talks about. So again, I'm hoping that people who are involved with psychology, counseling, therapy, social work, who are listening to your show um, can appreciate that this book can maybe offer some teachings that will really help us do our job better and uh, i just want to stress that 
the book is not about my ideas. It's about what I've been t told, uh, indigenous teachings, and I'm doing the work that these elders asked me to do. So it's not, I'm not offering anything out of my own knowledge, really. It's what I've been taught and been asked to, to share and pass on. So hopefully that will, will, uh, will be of some help to, to people who are connected with uh, psychology and, and the other social services uh, that uh, nursing and medicine, they're all working in the same area. Yeah. Well, after all, your book is called Honoring, Honoring the Wisdom of the First People. And you come mm -hmm. to tell us that these first people have something very important to contribute to our healing, to our fitting, I would say, rather than the word healing, to our fitting together. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, fitting together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is that um, part of that honoring, and, and I think you, you might have, you probably saw in the beginning, the, the royalties from the book are going to be given back to the people, the indigenous elders who have helped me. And I wanted to just to mention that uh, the knowledge that I received uh, was given freely. I, I never paid people, I, and, and it wasn't that kind of a, a rent. It was given freely, but it was not free. <laughs> given freely, but not free, because the obligation when you hear this is to use it to serve others. So that's the price. The price is service. And that's not always easy. You might say, oh, yeah, but it's not always easy because our ego is always looking for things to, to, to massage it. So service is the price. And so those who are listening and those who read the book, knowing that the knowledge that's offered in the book is, is freely given, but our obligation is to use it to serve others. And that's the kind of thing that I really wanted. That's the honoring part, eh? Yes. Uh, join the back honoring part, yeah. And uh, opening that door, uh, I would say that to those who are listening, I never say this, but future primitive gets me up in the morning because it's my f form of service. Uh, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, you know well, what gets me up in the morning? Tell me what gets me up. service, okay? This is a... Uh, it's a personal thing. Okay? Of course. Well, when I get up in the morning, yeah, I, I, I start. I started my mornings these days, Joanna, very early. I get up around five thirty. Okay. And I meditate for about a half hour. I do a little yoga. Mm -hmm. Then I go get my coffee, and I come back. But what really gets me going these days, uh, Joanna, is my grandson, who I'm helping to raise. And we all need in our lives something that gives us energy, that gives us life, and your program has that kind of quality. The other thing for me is, is uh, in addition to my grandson, who's forever emanating life, he's only not even four now, I also find that writing is something I do almost, how do I say, uh, I'll say compulsively, not in a negative sense, right, right. but I'm driven, I'm driven, and it's, it's my calling, and I love it. I love it and I hate it. <laughs> I hate it in the sense it's very difficult, but I love it. And so we have to have something like that. And um, 
the healers then that I've talked to, what they love is that they have a connection with the healing energy, but it's hard work. Joe Eagle Elk, who I work with at uh, Rosebud Reservation, mm -hmm. stresses as a healer, you do not ask to be a healer. You're called. And the reason you don't ask is because it's hard work. Healing is hard work. And anyone who does therapy or counseling in a really good way can tell you the same thing. It's hard. Totally rewarding, but hard because listening is very difficult. Sitting and listening and understanding and accepting. And then also being on call. Uh, Joe Eagleup would, would get calls all the time. Now, in a Western culture, we can't quite do it that way, but some people are on call. But being on call also means when you enter into the therapy hour, you're on call. You're there. Nowhere else, you're there. Mm -hmm. And when someone talks about something painful, you feel the pain. Mm -hmm. You see? So this is hard work. You know, totally uh, rewarding, totally invigorating, but it's hard. And I think anybody that tries to talk about the healing work, the counseling work is, oh, hey, just, you know, just listen. Well, listening is not easy. <laughs> listening is being there totally and accepting and not thinking about what you're going to say next. Huh. I love that story about your grandson just to go hmm. back and forth in our visiting and... Uh, you were you were looking at a statue of a buffalo. <laughs> you, yeah. Tell that now, story because it's I'll, so it's, delightful. Yeah, this is it. Now I'll tell you something about this, uh, Joanna. That story is of the grandson that was of my son, who's now deceased. It's his son that I'm helping to raise. Oh wow! So I'm glad you made that connection. Story. The story is that uh, my deceased son was, he was around the same, well, a little younger, around three. And um, <clears throat> he was going to a, there's a, a sort of a museum here of indigenous culture, uh, native culture in Saskatchewan, particularly in Saskatoon. And part of the museum has a buffalo run where they uh, depict how the, the people used to herd the buffaloes into kind of like a, almost like a corral and then push them over the cliff or, or into a place where they could uh, uh, get their pick of who they wanted to, uh, to uh, kill for food, right? So he comes, uh, my little guy comes in his, in his diaper still in front of that statue and leans kind of, kind of like bends his knee, you know, really squeezing, you know, like so, eyes looking wait, very intense. Say that again and, because um, the Skype uh, was... Uh, he he bends, he bends his little body. He bends, he bends, bends at the knees, and looks towards the statue, this buffalo, very intently, squeezing his eyes. And and mm -hmm. this native guy walks by and says to me, "Isn't it wonderful?" He says <laughs> that the young people appreciate spirituality. And I said to him, "Yeah, it is wonderful, but I have to tell you, my little guy is taking a crap now." <laughs> so the the idea of humor, eh? Joanna is yeah. so important also. Uh, the book talks a lot about spirituality, and I know some psychologists and some psychologists and, and counselors and so forth are a little afraid of that word. You know, we do psychology. We have a kind of a science of psychology. Let's not talk about spirituality. 
But what the book talks about is spirituality as an everyday occurrence, not this great revelation of I see, you know, finally see the spirit and this is my answer. But every day, like I'm looking outside my window right now and I see a beautiful sun still on the snow. We have snow now, still snow. <laughs> and uh, I can see the sparkle and it's, and it's just wonderful. It just makes my heart warm. So it's an everyday thing. Um, sometimes I'll go into a store and the clerk will have a smile and I'll say, gee, that smile makes me feel so good. And the clerk will say, what you said makes me feel so good. And we connect. So spirituality, the teaching I've gotten is an everyday thing. And part of that is the humor. When I was with the Kalahari in the, in the Kalahari desert um, with the Juntwasi, and by the way, that means we people or just people, which is how indigenous people often label themselves or call themselves. Uh, they had this healing dance, which is described in the book, very intense, uh, a trance-like state, very painful. And as the men are dancing around in this very painful state, the women will shout out who are clapping and singing, hey, you know something? You know what's hanging out of you right now as you dance? And they're talking about genitals, right? And I'm thinking to myself, now, wait a minute. This is supposed to be a sacred, spiritual uh, ceremony. And yet the humor, the purpose of that is they don't want these guys who are going to this deep state of altered state to leave Earth. Your feet remain on the ground. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. And uh, also, for example, in sweat lodges, which I've been to in the teaching there, there's a lot of joking, but it's not never frivolous joking. It's always joking with a point. And I have to share one story, eh? yeah. Joanna, because you know I'm 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 not a, a special person. Right? I was up in Alaska with uh, the elder Howard Loop. We were out at his fish camp. He was cooking a beautiful salmon on top of his wood stove with honey and all. It's just delicious. And uh, I like to joke. You know, my all my kids have said, like my little guy, for example, says, "Grandpa," he says, "You're such a joker." But then he says, wait a minute, you couldn't be a joker because the joker is not a good guy. <laughs> In any case, I like to joke. And I was joking with Howard. Eh? And I made a joke. And Howard turned around to me. Uh, Joanna, this was, it, it, he, right to the, he said, Dick, he said, don't you ever joke with me again about that. Boy, I just went, became as small as possible. And then I realized joking is part of the spiritual approach, the humor but you have to know what to joke about. It's not just making jokes. So that was a real teaching for me. And, and, and now I'm very careful because in most indigenous cultures, there are certain rules about who you can joke with about what, and that's out of respect. So the, the humor and the joking is a respectful way of lightening the, the mood, of, of having people be happy as opposed to spirituality with, you can't see my face, thank you, Anna, but the morose face, you know, mm -hmm. the church face. Mm -hmm. That's not what I've been, yeah. Yeah, I could tell that immediately as soon as I I saw your face on Skype. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's the same here. And maybe you could talk a bit about that. I realized while you were talking that, that some of the, some of the, most painful wounding that a lot of us carry is bad joking. Yeah. When we yeah. do it That's to others and when they address it to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
That's a very good point. You know, joking so often is meant to put people down. Oh, I'm only joking. But you're not joking. You're trying to put someone down and you cover it as a joke. But the joking that I've heard and the humor is to lighten things up, to make people smile, to talk about spirituality not as a somber, like, um, thing with a long face, but spirituality is part of life. It's it's joy. It's like... Um, it's uh, connecting with a life force, and that's what the humor means. And it's not joking to put people down. It's joking to make life alive. And that's a very beautiful teaching. And in, in therapy and counseling, mm-hmm. humor can be very important. can be very important. Um, a person comes in feeling totally dead, totally depressed, can't see a way out. Right. A proper, a respectful sense of humor can lighten the atmosphere. A smile comes and you say, hey, that's a nice smile that you just had. You see what I'm saying? That's a nice smile you just had. And all of a sudden, one smile leads to another. And at least the mood changes. You see, and that's what, that's what one of the things I learned, which was really important. As well as the fact, hey, Joanna, as you were saying before about community, mm-hmm. one of the chapters in the book, All My Relations, um, right. I'm looking right now as I'm talking to you, my, my desk is filled with plants. I talk to my plants. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they talk to me. <laughs> and one of, my, one of my wonderful, most wonderful experiences is taking a plant that's on its way out. I remember when I was living in the States, I live in Canada now, I used to walk in the alleyways and I remember seeing this beautiful plant that someone had thrown away because it was looking kind of rotty. I said, oh God, here's my here's my chance. I took it out of the garbage, put it in, nursed it back, and it was beautiful. It was still alive. And so I think that the, the idea that uh, things around us, and like I say, it takes so very little to bring someone's spirits up. Now that's not curing, that's not therapy, but it's part of therapy. And uh, I must mention the other thing that the book talks about is that from an indigenous point of view, psychology should not focus on fixing things. This is a very terrible part of psychology. I remember when I was trained as a uh, clinical psychologist, I was trained to fix things. Now, the problem with that, eh, Joanna, is that if you train to fix things, you must find things that are broken. Now, if things are not broken, you can't fix them, and therefore you have no work. So part of what happens is through the diagnostic scheme, we begin labeling things that really are life issues, life struggles, as problems, as diagnostic problems, as mental illness problems. Therefore, they can be fixed, and therefore psychologists have work. And what I've been taught by the healers and the elders I've worked with is that there is no such thing as cure. There's healing, and healing involves balance. Now, that's a tricky one because, you know, you might have remembered when you were on the teeter-totter, right, Joanna? The real fun with a teeter-totter is when you get on one end and on the other end is someone about the equal weight. So you never know who's up or down. It's no fun being the heavy one or the light one. You're always up or down. Right. But balance is always changing. So. Psychology, if it focused on balance, would be much closer to what healing really is about. But it's a little bit dangerous because psychology likes to know, are you cured or not? 
what I've been taught by indigenous, we're never cured. We're on a healing journey. And balance is always the issue. Sometimes as soon as you have balance, imbalance comes. And that's not a, that's not a disaster because the very next thing is balance. Um, I look at the, uh, the, the thing with tides, the ocean. You might love high tide, but guess what? Twelve hours later, there's going to be a low tide, you know, and inevitable. And you might love, oh, it's great with that low tide. There's going to be a high tide. When I was living in Fiji, we would come in from fishing, and uh, it was cold at night. You know, the ocean is very cold, even in the tropics. And we'd come in, and oh, great, two o'clock in the morning, high tide. We can bring the boat right up to the to the shore there, right close to our our village homes. Well, the next day, if we had to go somewhere, 10, 12 hours later, where's our boat? High and dry. <laughs> so you have to carry. So this is the way life is. You know, it's like uh, highs and lows. And it's not like a problem. It's just accepting the lows, accepting the highs, knowing that it will change. And again, psychology would have a hard time with that. Joanna, because it likes to measure things. It likes to know this is definitely over. Symptoms are removed. But that's the challenge. You were just talking about Fiji, and there's, there's something I've been wanting to ask you for when I was reading your book. Uh, you talk about the heel of Comera and the snake god in uh, Fiji. And, uh, uh, and when the snake god... Uh, appears in the body of Chimera, you describe what it's like to accept and believe that you're witnessing escape, uh, a, a snake god. But you, and yeah. you say the snake god is saying a lot of things like rapid fire. What, what is the snake god saying to you? Oh my goodness! You you got this is this was uh, you know part of the thing of working in an indigenous with indigenous healers indigenous elders is there has to be vulnerability, and I think this is something that psychology really needs. The, the book talks a lot about vulnerability that we're vulnerable to the unexpected. Um, there's a tremendous tendency that we all have to make the unfamiliar familiar because it's less stressful, it's less scary. But to me, the only way we can learn is to keep the unfamiliar unfamiliar. So here I am I'm interviewing a, a healer in Fiji, and I knew that she was known to become possessed. And we're having a regular conversation. All of a sudden, her body changes, her body shape, her body posture, and her voice, for a very nice voice, became extremely rough and gruff. What the F do you want, you know, swearing and everything. Mm -hmm. So... I turned to my friend, uh, Naivota, who was my friend and at that point my translator, although I then became fluent in, in Fijian after about a year and a half, and I said to him, Naivota, what do we do now? You know, I had no idea. And he turns to me and says, Rusiati, which was my name in Fijian, I have no idea what's happening. It's up to you. Well, <laughs> what do you mean it's up to me? I was thinking to myself, I don't know what's happening. So my mind quickly went through this. Eh, Joanna, I said to myself very quickly, I could easily just say, well, this is possession. I've studied this as an anthropologist. It goes on in different cultures. Sometimes it's an act. Sometimes it's real. But whatever it is, I'm not Fijian. I'm a Kaibalangi, which is an outsider. Mm -hmm. But then I said to myself, what kind of an attitude is that 
what kind of respect is that? That's like putting people in labels, putting people in categories, distancing people. And I said to myself, look, I don't know if the God is actually there, but how foolish, how disrespectful, how stupid could you be if you don't even allow that to be a possibility? And so I said to myself, if it's there, I have to respect it. And I don't know whether it's there or not. I may never know. But I then carried on as if I were talking to one of the spirits. And I said, this is a blessing. It was tough because that spirit talked very rough. And at the end, it said, get the out of here right now. And, and then went back to the woman who was much gentler. And we finished the conversation. Uh, the teachings I got, yeah. uh, Joanna, from were deeper than anything I'd heard before. So the risk of being scolded, the risk of being uh, not knowing where you are, was knowledge that was deeper than than anything I had received about the importance of respecting the spirit, because we don't know when the spirit comes. You know, there's one teaching I got from Phil Eagleoak, who was uh, the man I worked with at Rosebud. He said, if you meet somebody that's a, a pain in the butt, always seems to rub you the wrong way. Don't judge because the creator put on earth certain people whose job it was to be, as they call, backward people. That is, their job is just to rub us the wrong way, to test us. See how accepting we... Re it's very easy to accept someone we like. It's very easy to accept someone who agrees with us. The difficult is to accept someone who rubs us the wrong way, who we can easily put down for being foolish, stupid, and so forth. So I try not to judge people. Of course, I do. You know, we all do. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the teachings. And I think and acceptance is a very powerful part of the, of the teachings. Yeah. Yeah. Acceptance, acceptance vulnerability uh, might be the only thing between us and extraordinary chaos in this country. Oh. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I, I hope you're not talking about your politics, because we here in Canada, we're in a different world, you know? Yes, I, uh, I, uh, I was in Vancouver for three weeks in January, yeah. and it's so yeah. different. Yes, yes. Um, I would like to ask you about neuro physiology, if you would speak a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, the thing about psychology, mainstream psychology, is it has a preoccupation with the biological, the physiological, the genetic realm of behavior. And by, say, by preoccupation, I mean it's as if that's the most important part of human functioning. So, for example, in introductory psychology texts, typically they'll start out with the biological perspective, then they'll go into the social perspective, and then maybe the cultural perspective. So the first point I would make, I think, is that granted it's an important part of functioning, but I follow the medicine wheel teaching in, in the sense that there are four elements that are important. The biological, the mental, the emotional, and the physical. And the spiritual, rather. So the biological and the neurophysiological are very important, but only as one of four. And when we start to look to neurophysiology as the answer, I think it's a mistake. I think it's one of the ingredients. Now, 
Having said that, there's some very important work I'm sure you know about with people like Richard and sitting at meditation and the neurophysiological elements in that particular practice of meditation. I think that's a very powerful piece of research. But to me, the neurophysiology of meditation is not the explanation of meditation. It's another way of describing it. Not explaining it, but describing it. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's a lot of work that can go on, eh, Joanna? But I don't think it can be seen as as a term, you you know, the silver bullet. If we can only get the physiological or the genetic we would solve this, like schizophrenia. Uh, schizophrenia is complex, and the neurophysiological or the genetic component is one component. But there are some people who say, if we can only get the genetic component or the neurophysiological mechanism, we would cure schizophrenia. I don't think so. I think the, the best we can have is, is that the neurophysiological element creates a vulnerability but then whether that vulnerability is activated depends on social situations, cultural situations, life stresses in the case of schizophrenia. So again, neurophysiology is a really important realm, but I think we have to be careful that we don't say this is real science. To me also, hey eh, Joanna, mm-hmm. a person's story told honestly and, and deeply is real data, is real science. So there are many ways of doing science, and from an indigenous point of view, telling one's story is the essence of science. Because what else can be more important than personal knowledge? So, well, I, and I have, uh, like I said, Richie Davidson's work in, in uh, the neurophysiology of meditation and meditative states, very important work. Yeah. But it's only one part. One aspect. Well, you say in your book, stories are the medicine that fills in the gap of the self. (laughs) And that's... That's beautiful. Thomas King. It's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and and, and you know something? Um, Stories can be so easily dismissed. You know, Joanna, there's people who say, well, wait a minute. The story you're telling about how you grew up, that's not how it actually happened. Mom didn't say that to you. But the, part, the point of a story is not so much that it accurately tells what happened. The story is your creation of what life means to you at this point. And our stories, our life stories change. They have to change. I can tell you right now, 20 years ago, I wouldn't tell you the story about my grandson and the fact that his smile, he turns around and says to me, Grandpa, I love you. I couldn't tell you that 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Grandpa, I love you. Unsolicited. <laughs> you you wonder what goes on in his little mind to prompt him to say that. It's not because we've had some disagreement or something. Just randomly, Grandpa, I love you. And that's what that's what we could say to each other. Hey, I love you. Unsolicited. Yes. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. yeah. I yeah. loved you this That's morning when I was reading your book and uh, it's uh, it's the best thing you can and you communicate that through your book. I mean, I, I got up this morning and uh, I thought it was a really beautiful morning and we got in the car 
and Jose started telling me uh, what he'd gleaned from your book. And I was looking in at the mountains and I had tears in my eyes because mm. of uh, the compassion that I feel, the balance and the compassion, like you say. We have to go, but... Oh, we... I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're saying that. Oh. I'm enjoying this so much. And I let me talk to your your listeners. If yes, this please. This is a special yes. program. Oh. <laughs> I have to say that because uh, Joanna has made me feel very grateful. I feel very humble. I feel very honored. And I just want your the people who are listening to know that from one point of view, from one of the guests of Joanna, this is a very special program. So thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate this. Yes, maybe we'll do it again. Okay. All right. Thank you so okay. much, Dick. Very. Thank you. And take good care. You too. Yeah. You too.